I'm not going to dance, even though that music kind of made me want to. Oh, okay. Hey, for those of you who don't know, this is Dan Brown. And since he was up here already fixing the projector, uh, he is, I don't know your title, but he runs all that. Uh, he's over the awesome team that do that. And you know, I always say that media team at churches are like kickers. Like nobody ever thinks about them in football until they miss. Um, right? Y'all can laugh. It's funny. All right. Um, anyway, but Man, you and your crew are awesome, and we just appreciate you guys so much. So, Anyway, we didn't mess up the projector just intentionally to do that. Hey, if you're here visiting with us, let me just say to you that we are so glad to have you as our guest, and I just want to say to you that we would love to know who you are. I would encourage you to stop by one of the welcome tables on your way out where we have our Connect team there to answer any questions you have and let you learn more about how you can be a part of our church. You can also text the word CONNECT to the number that is on the screen, and uh, one of our uh, team members will follow up with you this week and uh, would love to help you learn how you can get connected. If you're with us online today for this first time, we're grateful that you're joining us, and we'd love to help you get connected. Another way that you can get connected or at least learn more about the life of our church is through our Discover Bayshore. Today is our first Discover Bayshore of the year that takes place immediately following our 11 o'clock service to around 1215 in the Fellowship Hall. We have about 30 people uh, signed up for Discover today, and so we'd love uh, a few last-minute uh, guests to join us as well. We'll feed you. We'll answer questions that you might have about our church and share with you a little more about who we are. Well, today is January 9th, and 2022 is already rolling along. And with the turning of the calendar comes reflection and resolution for most of us. And every new year, you can see by the marketing strategy of gyms, uh, financial institutions, educational opportunities, and even churches that many people are thinking about improving their lives or improving aspects of their lives. And I would say that we live in an era where many people are looking for the next best thing to help them. A new philosophy, a new expert, a new program. And while there are always opportunities to improve upon how we do things, and things do change, and so we need to embrace change, there are some things that have never changed. And that will never change. And if you continue to neglect them, you are going to be continually stuck or continually trying to avoid facing reality. And so over the next 10 weeks, with a one-week break in there for our 2022 Vision Day, we're going to be looking at nine truths from our journey through the Gospel of Mark that are important for us to grasp in 2022 or any year, in a series we are calling New Year, Same Truth. Today we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and we'll read verse 14 through 29, and we'll begin with the truth that sometimes all you can do is pray. Sometimes all you can do is pray. It's probably very appropriate that we start here. I need to be reminded of this. Now, I don't really follow the Enneagram, but for those who do, I am the achiever. For those who don't follow the Enneagram, the title alone explains my point. I like to move forward. I want to see things happen. I get impatient. 
I can be called sometimes the unstoppable force. In fact, sometimes I get so focused on what I am doing, even in the room, that I tune everything out. Just ask my wife. Whenever we plan a family vacation, I create a spreadsheet. And I create a spreadsheet of all the possibilities, whether it might be what place we're going to stay or where we're going to go, weighing the pros and cons, the value of money and time and all those things. And my wife says, I don't care, just pick a place. And like many of you, my life is very busy. I'm in the season where my job can be very demanding of my time. My children can be very demanding of my time. Uh, Our house, I own a house, and so that just always seems to demand my time. Can any of y'all relate? You, you are welcome to talk back to me, by the way, because sometimes I don't know if you're actually paying attention, and some of you aren't, based on the timing of your Facebook post. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. All right. If I'm, I can't do that, because it'll drive me crazy. So if I'm not careful, listen, if I'm not careful, I slip into moving from event to event, to thing to thing on the calendar, working towards my goals, and working towards my do list, And I don't even really need God for all of that. Now, I mean, I know I need God to breathe my next breath. But in our movement, in our busyness, we can function as if we are an atheist. And then we hit obstacles or we hit roadblocks that we can't seem to overcome. We can't seem to push through and we're reminded of what the disciples learn in Mark chapter nine, verse 14 through 29. I'll read that now. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, It immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and water to destroy him. But if you you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. God, may we truly desire to hear from you. 
God, you have spoken to us through your word. May it be made clear. May you get glory. And may we do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let me make sure we understand the situation. There's actually a lot happening in this crowd at this time, but Mark gets us to focus in on a boy who's demon-possessed. There's a painting by Raphael. It's actually a pretty famous painting, and it's in the Vatican that's called the Transfiguration. And it kind of depicts that this is taking place right after the Mount of Transfiguration, which we looked at last week, if you were here with us. And there's a lot going on in the crowd. But if you really zoom in on the picture, you can see that Raphael, and you can go to the next slide, is very clear to, you can go ahead and go to the next picture, is clear that that's just zoomed in to really highlight this demon-possessed boy that is there when this takes place. Now, many people think this boy has some type of epilepsy, and more liberal scholars have tried to say that that is all that it is, and that the Bible writers, and of course, apparently Jesus then, were just at a more primitive time, so they described it in this way. But when someone is like this, it's either demonic, so there's either something spiritual going on that's causing them to be like this, it's either physical, so it's just something physical that is taking place, or it is both. Now, the text here tells us that he had a spirit possessing him. So he was either having effects similar to epilepsy, or maybe he did have it physically, but in this case, it was caused by the spiritual issue. And Luke tells us that this spirit would hardly leave him. And he also tells us that this was this father's only child. And we understand from what the father is saying that he has spent his entire life, the entire life of this child, we estimate to be between 8 to 12 years, protecting him as it's led him so severely to almost burn himself and be drowned. This has been this boy's life and this father's life caring for his child. And the last thing we know about this boy is that his life has changed, that he is healed that Jesus heals him. And Luke tells us when this takes place that all were astonished at the majesty of God. Once again, we see the authority and the compassion of Jesus on display. And that is really the focal point of the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John leading up to the greatest display of the authority and the compassion of Jesus in his death for us, and in his resurrection. But that isn't the only thing that Mark wants us to take away from this account. And like we zoomed in on the painting of Raphael onto the boy, Mark zooms in on the disciples' interaction with Jesus after this takes place. Mark chapter 9, verse 28 and 29 says, When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, in some translations, it says prayer and fasting. But if you go back to almost all of the original Greek manuscripts, the word, the phrase, and fasting was not in there. So that was actually added to the Bible uh, many years later. And so, not that fasting is bad, but that's not the point of what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that this only comes out by prayer and fasting. He's saying sometimes 
The only answer is prayer. This text indicates to us that this man had brought his son to Jesus' disciples. Now, this apparently took place while Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And the length of Mark's account suggests that Peter's first-hand recount of this story is what is being written down. And so Peter, James, and John are returning with Jesus from being up on the mountain while the other disciples had been waiting on them to come back. And they're apparently and fittingly teaching and ministering during this time. And they can't heal this boy. And we learn why they can't heal this boy. They were doing this without the power of God. They weren't praying. They weren't asking for God to do the work. Now we have to be careful here not to speculate too much on why this was the case. But we know the whys that typically apply to us when we are not praying, when we are not asking God to do it, and when we are leaning on our own power. And so I wanna address three common reasons that we don't look to God's power. Three common reasons that we don't look to God's power. The first is pride and our ability. Pride in our ability. Now God has dealt each of us some amount of ability. We don't know why some have it and some don't. Some abilities that we have are just natural. There are some abilities, whether they're physical, they're intellectual, whatever it might be, that some people are just born with or born with a propensity towards. Some abilities come from nurture, and I would say many are, are nurtured, but from the home we grow up in, the environment we grow up in, our survival methods that we adapt based on maybe the difficulty of our environment. And some are acquired. We see that ability, and we go out, and we learn that ability. And if we are particularly privileged in an area or in multiple areas, we can tend to rely on our own abilities and trust in our own instincts always. And what the scripture tells us is that we cannot rely on ourselves. The American dream, the American message, often taught in our elementary schools, is always trust in yourself. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That scripture is telling us that we have to realize that we cannot fully rely on our instincts and our abilities, but we have to look to God. You see, you and I are trusting in someone or a combination of someone's for direction in our life. We're trusting in someone or someone's for what our marriage should be or what our expectations of marriage are. We're trusting in someone or someone's for how we parent or what the goals should be of parenting. We're trusting in something for our financial decisions and our financial lifestyle. We're trusting in someone or someones for the direction of our life in terms of what we think makes us successful. What is a life 
well lived. And we're trusting in someone or someone's definition, ultimately, of what happens when we die on this earth. And perhaps you have been able to avoid the reality of your inability because of your privilege. And because of the fact that you can just kind of keep moving forward and you have opportunities that keep coming your way. Or maybe you haven't. Maybe you don't have those kind of privilege and you don't know why you can't just push through or get through the roadblocks and the obstacles. And the answer to each of us, no matter where we are, is that we need God's help. And perhaps the reason you're at a roadblock even and facing an obstacle even is that God wants you to see that the answer is spiritual and that your greatest need is turning and depending on him. We need to be humble because we often have too much pride in our ability. And that can be a reason we don't look to God's power. But another reason that we often do not look to God's power is that we have a doubt in the power of the spiritual. We doubt the power of the spiritual. Some of y'all think you aren't good at the Jesus thing because you are a skeptic. And because you're a skeptic, you think that just doesn't make me fit with being a Christ follower very well. Listen, I am a skeptic. Now there is a difference between being a cynic and a skeptic. And sometimes I flirt with that, just being honest with you. Uh, a cynic has a bitter heart. They're cynical. But a skeptic, that's not altogether a bad thing. You're trying to decide, can I trust this? Can, you know, can I follow this? Maybe because of not growing up in the church, I don't know. But I've always had that skeptical profile. And, and honestly, a lot of my skepticism is like legitimate caution for things that are said. Because Christians, or a lot of crazy things are said in the name of Christ. And there's a lot of weird spiritual talk. And I would say, I call it an over-spiritualization, which means we just want to sound spiritual and we neglect the importance of the word. And I'm pretty bold about that. In fact, this past Wednesday night, I teach our third through fifth grade boys or help teach our third through fifth grade boys. And we're talking and one of the boys said, oh, you know, there was a boy who went to heaven and came back. And I said, no, he didn't. And I was like, oh, I probably should have talked to his parents before I said that so bluntly. Um, but he didn't. It's not biblical that people are going to heaven and coming back and writing books and making multi-million dollars about it. Just being truthful with you. I'm a skeptic. A lot of things people say that are charismatic in nature are not right. It's just this spiritualization that makes us prideful about our faith and begin to define our faith by different measures than the measures of the word. But if you do not believe that Satan is real and you don't believe that he's bad and you don't believe that he's causing harm, and he's trying to take people's attention off of Christ, then you have given in to his great lie. You have given in to the great lie and you are oblivious to the fact that there is a real spiritual war that is going on in this world. And God doesn't want us to see the reality of spiritual warfare to be scared. He wants us to see this to be prepared. When Paul writes in Ephesians chapter six, he, he tells us to be prepared for this. Ephesians chapter six, verse 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There is this spiritual battle that you need to be prepared for. And what is happening in the life of this boy is a demonic force trying to destroy him and trying to destroy those around him. And there are a lot of things that we can do. But if we deny the spiritual reality, the spiritual warfare that exists, we're going to miss some stuff in our lives and in the lives of others. Listen, I am for the tools of the world to help us get healthy. But if we deny that sin has consequences, we are escaping a deep, dark reality that can lead us to bad places. If we deny the reality that a sinful lifestyle leads us to a position of bondage and spiritual oppression and further into ultimately what the Bible says is death, we are confused. The Bible warns us of the power of evil. It warns us of the power of sexual perversion. It warns us of the power of envy to destroy our souls. It warns us of the, the problems that the love of money and greed causes us, among many other things. And perhaps you need to realize the power of the spiritual and acknowledge that for your life to head in the direction that it needs to head in. And so doubt in the power of the spiritual is a reason that we don't look to God's power. The third common reason that we do not look to God's power is that we have faith in an inferior power. Faith in an inferior power. See, the answer is not arbitrary spirituality or generic spirituality or misdirected faith. Strong faith in a weak object is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong object. I'm gonna say that again. I didn't give you that to write down, but maybe you should. Strong faith in a weak object is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong object. Some of you have weak faith. That's okay. It just needs to be placed in a strong object. And Today, there are counters, counter narratives to placing faith in Christ and in God that abound not just in the world, but even within what is called the church. Paul warns about this 2,000 years ago when he's instructing Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, holy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good. And that's just in the first five minutes of the news. Having the appearance of godliness, it says, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Paul says, not only is this the way of the world, but there are people who are trying to attach to a form of godliness without denying the power, I mean, without accepting the power of God. You see, this is why doctrine matters. This is why we can't just have a faith that is just fine in a few verses, 
that we attach to the goals that we have for our life. This is why we can't have Bible studies and messages that are just 10 steps to get better at whatever it might be and how to have a better you. This is why we have to see who is God? Who does the word say he is? What does the word say about how we should live our life? This is why we've titled our series New Year, Same Truth, because we don't need a generic arbitrary, misdirected spirituality, we need to see the power of Jesus. We need to see who he is. And if we want a new you, our only hope in a new you is in the same God who's been here since the beginning and not a version of that that we make up that fits what we want in our life, but we need to humble ourselves before him and realize how great he is because strong faith in a weak, made-up object is fatally Inferior to weak faith in a strong, perfect God who has existed since the beginning of time. And you might be spiritual, but you haven't really sought the truth. And you need to have faith in the right power. And a reason people don't look to God's power is they haven't looked to who God really is. Now, I don't know what was fully going on with the disciples. But apparently they're trying to do all the things they learned to do, but they aren't really asking God to heal the boy. And what the boy needs is God. I think that we are often attempting to do everything for people besides bring them to God, besides bring them to Jesus. I love this quote written decades ago by J. Vernon McGee. He says, right now, the organized church in desperation, is reaching out, protesting and marching and getting involved in all kinds of things. And the world is actually criticizing the church because they feel it should get more involved. But our primary goal is getting people to Jesus. I like that he says in desperation because many churches realize the way our culture is going. And in desperation for survival, the organized church is trying to figure out all kinds of tactics to engage the world. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with it being engaged in some of those tactics. And even the world criticizes the church when the church isn't doing more of the worldly things they should be doing. But our primary goal, our primary goal is getting people to Jesus. I am all for us doing great work in the community, that our great work should abound. But if we are not preaching the gospel, not just me, but us, we are missing what is eternally important in people's lives. And we might make people's lives temporarily better and their marriage is temporarily better and their parenting temporarily better and their finances temporarily better, but until they are motivated by the gospel, they are still headed on a path for destruction. And the primary goal of the church is to preach and proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what people need more than anything else. And in this situation, the disciples, they don't rush the boy to Jesus. I, I need you to notice this. When Jesus comes down and he's asking what's going on, they don't rush the boys to, boy to Jesus because they're involved in the argument. Maybe they're defending their faith and their selves to those who are arguing with their religion. Maybe they're defending their way of life to those who are infringing upon their way of life in the culture. They don't look good in this moment, and so they're trying to prove that they are right about what they believe. Maybe they're overanalyzing what went wrong with the church in the last five days. What went wrong with the ministry of the disciples? 
And so they're so focused on the problems, they're so focused on deconstructing the moment and defending themselves that they're not focused on the primary need that this boy needs Jesus. Can that relate to our society and our churches today? But the boy needs Jesus and the father, he brings his son to Jesus. And the minute the boy comes before Jesus, the spirit in him saw Jesus and started, and I don't know whatever other way to say this in translating it from the Greek, but the spirit started freaking out. And David Garland, Pastor David Garland says, the exorcisms in Mark are not simply deeds of kindness and compassion, but demonstrations of the divine power and wrath against Satan. When Jesus heals someone, it's out of compassion, but it's also to show his power. And Jesus rebukes the crowd for not seeing this. Matthew says in chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus' words echo Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Psalm 95, verse 10. Comparisons have been made to Moses coming down the mountain and the Israelites waiting to hear from God and becoming idol worshipers as they wait to hear from God. Now, Jesus isn't speaking to the Father. He's speaking to the crowd, and he displays what you might call holy annoyance. I display annoyance often. It's not typically so holy. And I wonder sometimes when you look at the way we live our lives in the waiting if Jesus would be so annoyed with us. But Jesus doesn't express just annoyance. He conveys purpose. Matthew says in verse 20 that he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, moving mountains was a common illustration for overcoming difficulties in that day, and I think it is today as well. And while this verse is completely butchered by many people, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, if you have the smallest amount of faith in me, these huge challenges in life can be overcome with ease. To be clear, he's not saying, if your faith is great. He's saying, your faith is small. But if it's in me, the God that you might have faith in is so great that he can do mighty things through you. Now, I don't know that that results in a perfectly positioned selfie on Instagram that glorifies you with a verse out of context. I think it says we should worship Jesus for who he is. Now, I need to mention that this is where people have gotten very confused. This isn't a formula. It doesn't say if you have faith, everything is gonna go your way. It doesn't say that the reason somebody's struggling with that mental issue or that challenge or that physical issue for all of their life is because they don't have enough faith. That's not what this is saying. In fact, let's not make the mistake of being like Job's friends and automatically assuming that because bad things are happening to Job that there's something wrong with him. Because sometimes God definitely allows, possibly causes bad things to happen to people for what he's doing in their life. And Job, even though he struggled, had a faith that God is for him, no matter what happens. And faith is knowing that God has my best interest in mind, regardless of how I might be inclined to perceive that presently. Faith is knowing that God has my best interest in mind, regardless of how I might be inclined to perceive that presently. Sometimes, my circumstances and my limited knowledge cause me to struggle with how is this good? How can this happen? How can this not happen in God before me? But as a believer, I know that Jesus Christ suffered for me 
so that I could be with him in glory. And I believe that he has my best interest in mind, even if I don't see it right now. Faith is not something that we can overlook and ignore. In fact, in Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews gives us what's called the hall of faith. It's all these people who displayed great faith in God. But he, he says a verse, in, uh, something written down in verse six that's incredibly important for us to hear, and it's this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. To be someone who is near to God, who walks with God, we must believe that he exists and we must believe that he is for us. And sometimes we struggle with that. We struggle in our belief. But I want you to notice again the Father. Matthew says in verse, seven, in verse 14 in chapter 17, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him. See, Mark doesn't record that, but the man is kneeling before Jesus in a sign of respect and submission. And Mark does tell us, as we read in verse 22 of chapter nine, when he describes this, his son, he says, it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love this real moment. I think many of us can identify. I believe, but help the limits of my belief. And we need to be real. And I wish this church, I wish our groups, I wish everybody was just able to be real about our struggles to believe. But, I, but you also need to acknowledge that it's a problem that he doesn't believe. And I think today a lot of times we're real about our lack of belief and we never deal with the fact. I mean, sometimes we like applaud ourselves because we admit we have issues and we never work on them. It'd be like somebody going to a new job and saying, I'm sorry, I don't know how to do that. I appreciate your honesty, let's train you. And then be like, no, I don't need the training, I'm good. It's like, whoa, whoa, you don't really want to follow me. And so if we don't bring that disbelief, we don't believe, bring those struggles to God, then we don't really wanna follow him. And there are many reasons that you might have unbelief, but unbelief is a sin to repent of. Unbelief is a sin to repent of. Maybe, maybe you struggle with unbelief because of the experiences you had with believers when you were younger. Maybe it's because you have questions about the Bible or about things that you've went through in your life that haven't been answered. Maybe there are things you don't want to change, and so you don't believe that if you change them that actually you'll be happy and, and that it will work out. But when you encounter Jesus, you realize his authority and you kneel before him. And the question that is before you, the question this man is saying is, do you believe that he can change your life? And all your questions won't go away. All your unbelief won't go away. In fact, if you, if you look through the life of the disciples, they believe Jesus right and they keep following Jesus and miracles happen and then several times in the gospels, it's like the disciples said, truly, you are the son of God. It's like, you didn't know that already? I didn't know that already? That's maturity. Maturity in Christ is just continuing to realize God's compassion and God's authority. And as a Christian, this is our entire life lived for him. You see, the power of the gospel it's the starting point. It's what makes us believe, but it's, and it's the finish line, which is, 
you know, why we believe we'll go into glory, but it's also everything in between. The power of the gospel is the starting point, it's the finish line, and everything in between. J.D. Greer says the gospel is not just the diving board, it's the pool we swim around in as Christians, that we depend on God every day for our lives. And Pastor Jim Cimbala, the Brooklyn Tabernacle, says the devil is not terribly frightened of our human efforts and credentials, but he knows his kingdom will be damaged when we begin to lift up our hearts to God. As a Christian, God has given us wisdom. God has given us experiences. We don't have to ask him for every moment, every decision. We can rely on the tools of the world. But ultimately, at the beginning and at the end and everything between, we depend on God. One of our values as a church is this. If our goals don't require dependence on God, they are not big enough. We have a lot of talented, educated, solid people in our church who can come up with great strategies and great plans but we don't want to rely on our own power and our own strength. We wanna see God do his work for his glory in the life of our church. And I hope that that's what you're giving your life to as well. I hope as you make plans for this year and plan, because I'm with you in the Excel spreadsheets and the calendars and all that stuff, but that God is who you depend on, that he's who you're looking to and that you realize you need him every hour. And I hope you'll be a person who prays, prays for God's will in your life, and a person who prays for God's will in others. As a church, we gather together once a month. We're doing this tonight. I don't want you to come out of guilt for our prayer nights. The purpose is, and I don't know a lot of churches are doing this, we just wanna come together and say, God, we, we want you to work. We need you to work. I would really invite you, if you're a part of this church, to, if you can, make those part of what you do. There's no, there's no singing, there's no sermons, but we're people praying for each other and praying for God's will in our life and our community and beyond. And right now, what I would like to do as we respond is I wanna lead us in an extended time of prayer. I just think there's certain people that God has placed in my heart, and I just wanna pray for you. If none of this applies to you, pray with me, believer, for these people. So if you'd bow your head in prayer with me. God, I first pray for those that they're struggling to believe in you. God, you are not calling them to believe everything and to figure out everything and to know everything. But you're calling them to respond to you if they've encountered who you are. And so, Lord, I pray you would help their unbelief. God, that your spirit would open their heart to who you are. And that they would admit that there is no way that they can be righteous on their own. You need to receive righteousness. It needs to be given to you. And that's what Christ did on the cross, is he gave you the opportunity to have life in him by atoning for your sins. And so that your life isn't about earning his love, it's about the gift of his love. C.S. Lewis said that I, 
don't see what I believe. I believe so that I can see. You're trusting in something. You're believing in something. And I pray that God would help you to believe in him. And as you trust him, you would see how good he is. And your belief would grow. God, there's someone in this room or maybe watching online today who something has a stronghold on their life. It's an addiction. It's enslaving them. And you constantly give in to it. You're full of guilt. You're full of shame. Lord, I pray that if they've never confessed their sins to you, that they would do it now. And God, if they've confessed their sins to you, I pray that they would confess their sin to someone else. A brother or sister in Christ who will support them and be there for them. God, you have given us a lot of worldly tools to help us overcome these things. And so, God, I pray that they would lean into the wisdom of this world for those things. But ultimately, God, that they would depend on you and all of it. And God, I am praying for deliverance. I'm praying for freedom for my brother. I'm praying for freedom for my sister that they would never, no longer be bound by this. This would not be their identity. And even if they struggle with some of the things going on in their life, God, they would see your victory in it as they press forward and get help. God, I know that there are people in this room who there's a person in their life who they love who's headed towards destruction. There's a path of destruction behind that person. And that person either doesn't know you or doesn't seem to live out what they say about you. And God, just as you, in an almost inexplicable way, showed up and opened my heart to you, God, I pray that you would open that person's heart. God, you would just work in their life. And God, maybe you would send someone who, who isn't me because I've had the conversations, I've, I've, I've said the things I need to say. If there is something you need me to be bolder about, God, then empower me, empower us. But God, if not, send someone else. God, do something in their life so that they would see who you are. Lord, there's somebody in here who they just don't have hope. They don't believe you have a purpose for their life. Maybe they're in kind of a later season of their life. They believe that there's really no use for them. What a lie from Satan. May they see it as such. Maybe they have a past, a recent past, but they're following you now, but they think my past is gonna come up. It's gonna get in the way. What a lie from Satan. May they see it as such. God, may they be freed and walk in the freedom of Christ to live their lives for your glory. God, I just pray now that even when we don't understand what you're doing, even when we're struggling to believe how you're at work, that we would remember whose we are in Christ. And God, we would trust you one step at a time. In Jesus' name I pray.